May 23rd. I want to go back to normal. What's normal? The Paramount Plus original series, Evil Returns. We've already hunted werewolves and demons. And now what? A baby antichrist? Okie dokie. Prepare yourself. You will not beat us. For the end. I have visions of hell. Make it stop. Make it shut up. You're not gonna survive this. Evil. The final season. Streaming May 23rd. Only on Paramount Plus. The Built by Bama Online Podcast presents T. Watts and T.R. for a Thursday April the 16th, 2020, Travis Schreier, joined by site publisher Tim Watts as we get another one of these babies going. Uh, Tim, how you doing on this Thursday? Good, man. Good. It's good. Uh, glad it's warming back up. We've got a couple of days of cold weather, but otherwise it's good. Looks great outside. Yeah. yeah, we got through. How'd you get through Sunday night? Because I can tell you, man, over here in Tuscaloosa, right behind the house, we had tornadic activity up this way in northeast tuscaloosa you guys get through that okay yeah you know we never we never caught much of it we got some heavy winds and some heavy lightning at times but never lost power so we were very fortunate especially considering all the stories we were hearing so nothing to complain about it looked terrible and and and, uh some of the stuff i saw on twitter the the videos and stuff looked just awful yeah it was uh we actually even more so where we live than even in comparison to that historic tornado in 2011, we saw and heard more of the effects of that storm Sunday night. Crazy. I mean, when you consider the mass devastation from nine years ago uh, this month here in Tuscaloosa, but that was was probably about four miles to the south of us. Uh, But this one was literally like in our backyard, and we certainly hope everybody – out there got through it as uh, as good as they possibly could. We got a lot to get to on this edition of T. Watts and TR. Tim, I guess we'll start with some of the newsy stuff. Alabama men's basketball here in the last 24 hours. Nate Oates and that staff with a very productive run through the late signing period, making it official with those four late period signees on Wednesday, and then later in the evening, we get word that Jalen Forbes, after his freshman season in the program, has entered the transferred portal. The math pointed to the potential of if Herbert Jones does return for his senior year, Alabama needing to reduce its roster by one scholarship player. Perhaps that's going to sort of be the extent of this. Uh, Tim, your thoughts on what Nate Oates has been able to do here in the last couple of weeks? You know, I don't know how you don't love it. I mean, you're looking, you know, they, you know, he's got a type. Obviously, he likes these long guys. Everybody's six five, six six plus long guys. A lot of Rod Grizzard body types, really long, athletic, um, can score and, and can, can and can defend. I mean, they got that athleticism to get out there and and uh, rebound, which is going to be huge. That's why you know Jordan Bruner's big. A guy's basically a double double guy. He's got that college experience. Is coming in now. He uh, Nate Oates said basically he was, you know, he's going to get what he needed to to win, and he certainly went out and landed what I think is an excellent class. Yeah, you like Jordan Bruner specifically because they need a presence in the paint, man. And not that, you know, Jordan Bruner is Shaquille O'Neal or anything like that, but you look at his rebounding numbers, you look at his uh, ability to defend the rim more than what maybe they've had in this last season. 
maybe not to the extent of a Dante Hall, but at least a presence and a guy that has shown that he can face up to the basket and knock down the perimeter shot when left open. So absolutely, uh, from an impact perspective, you got to think Jordan Bruner's at the top of that list. Uh, Jalen Forbes moving on. I like Jalen Forbes, and I'll tell you why I like Jalen Forbes. I think he's going to be a good player for someone. Uh, this this guy's got some dog in him. He's a high-level defender. He's a hard-nosed player. He still has plenty of room to grow offensively. But, Tim, I guess when you look at a class that's going to bring in guys like Josh Primo and certainly a junior college transfer like Keon Ellis, you're not bringing in a guy from the junior college ranks to, to sort of play that 2-3 position to – to sit around and, and be a practice player. So uh, I guess in some ways it made some sense. If there was going to be some movement on the roster, uh, it might be at the guard position. Although now you also kind of have a surplus of post players as well. Yeah. I think a lot of these guys though, are sort of those combos that, you know, can play the two, three, three, four, four, five, yeah. a lot of length out there, a lot of versatility. Um, the kid from IMG is, you know, Darius smiles. He's a guy, he might be a little bit down the road, but He's going to be pretty good coming in, but down the road, I think he's going to be even better. But you're right. You get guys coming in like, you know, Ellis and Bruner. They're instantly coming into play. I don't know if they'll be starters, but they're going to be early impact guys. And, and of course, Josh Primo. I mean, that kid's special. You know, if you watch him, you watch his film, people talk about him on, you know, on the court and off the court. There's a lot to like there. So you're getting three guys coming right in. Then, of course, you got Ambrose Hilton. And you got miles that are going to compete for playing time. It's going to be hard to keep any of these guys off the floor. Yeah. And Shackelford back and what he was able to do in that freshman season, Quinterly, you know, Forbes is a, he's from Mississippi. I think both those programs over there, Ole Miss, Mississippi state. I'm not, I don't have any Intel on this, but I could certainly see Forbes going to a program like that. I think he is a power five player. Uh, but this is just college basketball, man, in 2020. Uh, the, the transfer, <laughs> that transfer portal stays lit, Tim. Um, and uh, it, 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 it takes on another in Jalen Forbes here in the last day or so. Hey, Tim, uh, some other things we're going to get into on the podcast today as it relates to Alabama football. We, we should be previewing an A-Day game coming up, by the way in the next 48 hours over at Bryant-Denny Stadium. We know we don't have that. So we're going to get into some late bloomers of the Nick Saban era. How about that, Tim? Because contrary to popular belief, Tim, not every guy comes in here and starts as a freshman and just rolls through their careers. There's been more than a few guys that even in terms of recruiting rankings that were up there in that high four into the five-star range, it took some time for some of these guys to be what they eventually became. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, you look at, you know, there's a there's a lot of competition at Alabama. So, um, you know, with the guys on campus, the guys that come in that are super talented, it's hard to compete. Sometimes you can get lost in that shuffle and it can take a couple of years in the right situation and the right spot for you to be able to jump in there and, and make an impact. You know, it's interesting to me because if you go to Nick Saban's only undefeated team of his five national championship teams at Alabama. It's that 2009 team made up largely of players that he did not recruit to Alabama. So it was essential for some of those players that he inherited from Mike Shula later on in their careers 
2008, 2009, when things really began to turn. Now, make no mistake about it. You start adding in the Julio Joneses, the Terrence Cody's, uh, you know, the Mark Ingram's, the Trent Richardson's, Mark Barron, all those guys. We get that. Uh, But there were some late bloomers among those 2008, 2009 teams. Uh, Guys like Corey Reamer at the linebacker position, Drew Davis at offensive tackle, Eric Anders. Uh, You can kind of run down the list, especially when you look at that first national championship team and some of those fifth year guys, maybe even some gray shirt candidates, I think, in that mix. Um, John Parker Wilson at the quarterback position through 2008 uh, really came on later in their careers, Tim. Yeah, Corey was a guy, you remember, they had that class where they had uh, Travis Sykes and uh, Sam Bernthal and all those guys, sort of that same cut, those same type guys. They all sort of had to find a place to play. Corey was always a really good player in high school, played at Hoover when it was the best of the best. Uh, I'd go out to practice at those Hoover games, and they would be, it'd be like watching a college. I mean, not that Hoover slacked off a lot, but back then it was really, you know, with the with Rush Proach and those guys running that program, it was it was insane to watch. So had a lot of potential. Never really knew if he was going to be – sort of thought he was going to be a safety, and there was talk he'd be a safety, but found a home at outside linebacker where he probably did project the best. And, uh, yeah, ended up with a good career. And John Parker Wilson, I mean, that's a guy yeah, – that's sort of the model. When people get crazy about the gray shirt, John Parker Wilson was one of the first real gray shirts that, you know, William Vallejos was another, but John Parker Wilson was a gray shirt. Um, and nobody can say that didn't benefit him. I mean, he was a guy that just deferred his enrollment, came in in a different semester, wasn't going to play early, um, came in and, and, and actually, you know, had, had some really good football games. Yeah, I think Drew Davis came in with uh, John Parker Wilson as a gray shirt in that same year, maybe 2004 bowl practices yeah, right. before the Music City Bowl and then into 2005. And, you know, Drew Davis, one of those guys – small school guy right coming out of high school weren't sure about the level of competition probably because of that it took a little longer for drew davis but he ends up being the starting right tackle on the 2008 and 2009 teams that went a combined 26 and 2 with a national championship and um you know a really solid player eric anders another one of those guys before there was courtney upshaw at outside linebacker at the Jack, there was Eric Anders in 2009. He had the memorable sack and strip fumble of Garrett Gilbert uh, in that uh, 2010 BCS championship game win over the Texas Longhorns. Even Lee Tiffin, a kicker, I would put in this category, Tim, because we all remember that nightmarish performance against Arkansas in 2006, which really helped grease the skids for Mike Shula and then transitioning (laughs) into Nick Saban. So maybe it wasn't all that nightmarish after all, but Lee Tiffin ended up bouncing back. And in 2009 on that national championship team, you saw him on some all America lists. Yeah. I mean, that guy, you know, again, I can't explain the kickers at Alabama. I know we get asked that (laughs) at every speech and on radio all the time. I can't really explain. I mean, there's been some talented guys that come here. I don't know if it's just the, the pressure or the situation, but you know, Drew was a guy that that that's a good that was a good mention because Drew was a guy he was so big and he's playing small ball, smaller level of, of football, so it was easier for him to move guys ra- around. Now, I've got a theory that not, it's hard 
to look good at that level when you're that size unless you're just a freak athlete because smaller guys are quicker. I mean, you got to defend, you know, Drew size when he was in high school, he faced a lot of 185, 205 pound defensive ends, you know, so it's, <laughs> it's hard to kick step out there and block that guy. You know, about the same time you're out there running for little guys, people are running. I've seen some of the best. Drew had film um, that wasn't on his highlight tape, but I saw him pull in high school and chase a kid who literally was running in the bleachers with his mom. So, I mean, it was it was hard. So, yeah, he was sort of that unknown guy. And back then, testing wasn't prevailing, all that stuff. And uh, But, yeah, I ended up a really good player. You talk about Corey Raymer, too. That was a guy in 2009, people forget. Dante Hightower coming off that outstanding true freshman season in 2008 goes down against Arkansas here in Tuscaloosa early in the 2009 campaign. Reamer had primarily been the starter at strong side linebacker to that point. Alabama pretty much moves him in there next to Rolando McLean at the weak side, and that defense never really missed a step. Now, it helps when you got Rolando in there at the mic, okay? I'm not sure if Tim or myself could play weak side next to <laughs> Rolando McLean in 2009, but a lot of guys could. But all the credit to Corey Reamer, a, a really solid player, a smart guy. Um, you always knew he was going to be in position. And uh, as you said, a better athlete than probably got credit for because he was sort of initially a safety prospect coming out of Hoover High School. By the way, Tim, your boy. Rush Probst, did you see where he's the new head coach at Valdosta High School down there in Southeast yeah. Georgia? Yeah, I mean, that guy Rush, I mean, he, I can tell you this, that guy can coach football. Um, I loved going out there and watching Hoover back before they were uh, on reality TV shows and they were as popular as they'd end up getting. He was a great guy. His practices were unbelievable. Uh, had the big had the big clocks up and the countdown, no wasted time. It was just unbelievable. And that's another thing to help Corey is that at that time at Hoover, he was already competing at the highest level. I mean, there was, you know, Hoover had a guy, you know, the next man up. You know, they were just like a lot of colleges. So, uh, yeah, but Rush, he keeps, uh, you know, he's too good of a coach to keep off the field. That whole, so I was curious to see how that prep school in Alabama was even going to work. I don't know how they were going to, they were sort of late, you know, with trying to get the schedule. I mean, trying to get a stadium and all that stuff. And uh, But it doesn't surprise me Rush is on the move, and he can coach. I mean, there'll be some contact, but that guy's going to be able to coach some football. So in, in Valdosta, Georgia now, you've got Jamie Dubose and Rush Probst. How about that for a retro-Bama matchup from back in the day, Tim? Yeah, that's going to be a, a uh, probably a little bit of contact. Jamie Dubose at Lowndes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. And he put together a squad now. Thompson took care of him last year, but two years ago – when uh, Central Phoenix beat Thompson in the state championship, they looked like those old Prattville teams under Bill Clark. Just everybody was was a beautiful athlete, huge, strong, could run. It, they, you know, that was a good team Thompson beat last year too. Thompson had a really good team, obviously, but uh, Jamie Dubos, he can coach. That's going to be interesting. That's going to be quite a little rivalry brewing down there. Yeah, the guys get that state of Alabama retirement, Tim, and then they go get paid at places like Lowndes and Valdosta, where you're Double looking at somewhere in the neighborhood of nearly 200K a year, probably, for those guys in southeast Georgia to coach high school football. Yeah, double dip, and that's smart. Absolutely. Also, you can only, also, you can only stay at a place so long, you know, nowadays. You're not yeah. going to have many 
I mean, he was his name, Bud Fosters. You're not going to – even Bud – what was it? Is that his name in Varsity Blues? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he, uh, Bud Foster at uh, Virginia Tech was there forever. Oh, that's – defensive coordinator. What was the coach's name in Varsity Blues? Uh, it was Bud something. Okay. You're right about we'll the with, Bud. We'll go with Bud something. And, coach Bud. Uh, even he out <laughs> – even he out <laughs> – Exactly right. Coach Bud wore out his work welcome as well. So you gotta, you gotta. Yeah, get- it is. And, you know, if you do five to seven years like Dubos did at uh, Central Phoenix City, that's that's about right for this era. Even yeah. at the high school level, as crazy as that sounds, because yeah. Tim and I, we we came up in an era where our high school football coach was a was a staple. You know, just kind of hanging around in those bike coaching shorts and those Rydell coaching shoes, and you know. Uh, was going to be there 25, 30 years. You could pretty much, yeah. you could pretty Absolutely. much count on it. But now that we've gotten totally sidetracked on uh, Varsity Blues, Hoover, which we, high school which, football, and which we tend to do, <laughs> Rush Pros. Which hey, there's nothing wrong with that. Let's uh, let's get into sure. Let's get into some more of these uh, late bloomers. You know, Courtney Upshaw, one of those guys. We talked about him in relation to Eric Anders and being sort of the the backup to Eric Anders in 2009. Uh, Took Courtney a couple of years to sort of get his feet under him. But once he did, double-digit tackles for loss in 2010 and 2011. He had 16 and a half sacks in his final two seasons. Um, You know, it seems like we're going to talk about guys today in this in this category. The closer you play to the football, Tim, the longer it probably takes you to get to a point where you're ready to play at this level. Yeah, with Courtney, I mean, he came in with some guys, really good guys ahead of him. Courtney was so much fun to watch in high school. Uh, wasn't really sure how he projected. He probably, I mean, we 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 everybody loved him. Ranking wise, probably still we didn't appreciate him enough for how strong he is, how big he was, uh, he was at the time, and obviously got bigger. And also the thing you you, you kind of didn't under you kind of didn't know unless you met him was how serious he was on the football field, how mature he was. A um, lot of personality, you know, just you know, just a country kid and uh, a hard worker, and and they're just you know one of those strictly business Alabama guys, sort of like in that Julio vein. Not as quiet as Julio, obviously, but very serious when it came to football. And a guy, I guess, when you mentioned trying to project him, physically, when you looked at Courtney Upshaw, you wanted to think inside linebacker, right? I mean, body type, those type of things. Absolutely. He looked more inside than outside. Mm-hmm. He did, and he was so thick, but, I mean, he was so good off that edge. You know, that's that was sort of the question with him is would he project inside, would he project outside, would he play with his hand down. But uh, physically, probably was, could have been in it. I mean, I think he'd been a great inside linebacker, but outside is where he really uh, excelled, just had the feel for getting to the quarterback. It was tough for one guy to beat him and keep him from being disruptive. Came in in that same class with Dante Hightower, that incredible class of 2008, man. I mean, you can just keep going down the list with that 2008 class. We've done it here in the past on the podcast. But I recall Alabama going into that 2008 season trying to figure out who it was going to put at that inside spot next to Rolando McClain. And uh, Courtney Upshaw was a guy early on when he first got here. Uh, that Kevin Steele took a little bit of a look at there at inside linebacker before it ultimately fell on 
Dante Hightower to do it, but it kind of gave us an early glimpse, even in 2008, at how Alabama would go about its linebacker recruiting, right, in terms of attracting guys that whether it's inside, outside, maybe both, you know, they can they can sort of spread around those inside and outside linebacker positions. Courtney eventually, of course, settled on the outside, and you're right, with that physical stature and that sturdiness that he brought to the table. Really good run defender as well. Set a hard edge against that run. How about Kevin Norwood at the wide receiver position? Never really a number one receiver at Alabama, Tim, but a guy who probably most memorable for that 2010 Penn State game here in Tuscaloosa, Kevin Norwood catches a touchdown pass, does a front flip as he's going into the end zone. <laughs> and we really didn't hear from Kevin that much uh, for the next season and a half or so after that front flip, Tim, into the end zone. We don't know where Kevin went. Kevin doesn't. <laughs> Kevin doesn't know where he was either. Yeah, another. Nick didn't like player. that real good. You know the yeah. one thing. The one you know one of the things you'll notice all these guys have in common is their work ethic and that sort of mental toughness. Uh, Kevin was another one of those guys. He easily you know now in in this day and age he easily could have been a kid that transferred. You know you get in a doghouse sure. like that it's <laughs> it's kind of hard to get out when you know once you do something like that. Uh, but obviously, great player, had a good game, you know, beat Tyron Matthew in the national championship game. Really athletic, really great kid, really fun to interview and talk to. You know, he's one of those guys, he sort of falls in between, like, he's a good athlete, but he's not a great athlete. And uh, But he had a lot of things working for him. He had good hands. He had good size. He played a cup of coffee in the NFL, right? I think he ended up with the Seahawks for a year or two or something. But, uh, you know, obviously, obviously a good kid who waited his turn. And, you know, before Julio, they weren't really passing the ball (laughs) that much either. So Kevin sort of had to wait to get that offense a little bit more open, a little bit more balanced. Yeah. Did that front flip into the end zone against Penn State in 2010? And again, the next time we really heard from uh, Kevin Norwood was that BCS national championship game when Marquise Mays went out with the hamstring pull early in that game, it really went to Kevin Norwood to pick up the slack and really did just that against the Honey Badger. Had some nice success, had that length to him, Tim, and some athleticism. And A.J. McCarron was able to sort of go to that corner route a couple of times against Tyron Matthew and uh, hit some big plays, hit some big plays to – to Kevin Norwood in that game, and he did over his final couple of seasons. It was overshadowed a little bit by the the arrival of Amari Cooper in 2012, but you know Norwood, uh, 67 receptions over the 2012 and 2013 season. So certainly nothing to sneeze at there. Um, Michael Williams, another one of those kind of guys, uh, came in, worked initially on the defensive side of the ball at Jack linebacker. Settled at tight end, and when you look at that 2012 offense, especially in the way it was able to run the ball, and also on occasion flip it out there to to Michael Williams in the passing game, uh, he certainly made a a huge impact. And it's interesting, Tim, because he was a product of Pickens County High School. Michael Williams was. He's now the head coach over there. Yeah. Michael Williams started on defense at Alabama before going to offense and. Alabama in its 2020 class, Ja Marion Latham is one of those guys that Michael Williams coached. 
And I know you've got some thoughts on the potential for Latham going from maybe defense initially over to offense or uh, kind of some 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 irony there when talking about those guys. Yeah, they're both jumbo athletes. You know, Mike Mike was a big kid. I think he spent two or three years in the NFL as well as a late round pick and uh, stuck around some teams. I think he I want to say he was on a Super Bowl team. Is that right? He might have been with the Patriots. Was yeah. he ultimately with the Patriots? Yeah. You know, he moved to he moved to tackle in the NFL with the yeah. Lions. Over so. three hundred. Yeah, he was over three hundred pounds at one point, right? Yeah. So yeah, and that you know, and uh, yeah, the uh, um, so yeah, him and the the kid Alabama signed have a lot in common physically. Uh, both played, you know, he could play uh, two positions. He's a guy I like personally. He's offensive guard, good defensive lineman. I think he could come down to need. So yeah, that could reflect a little bit on what they did with Michael. And uh, it was funny with Michael, like you said, he went on to the NFL and moved on and and uh, changed positions. Made it. I'm looking it up now. He was there four years, a couple years with the Lions, it looks like, and a couple years with the Patriots. Um, yeah, Super Bowl champion. So yeah, had a good career. Went back home, and uh, well, he walks up and there's a you know a, you know pretty good kid. Now that uh, pretty good player right out of the gate who's going to Alabama. So yeah, there is some irony there. Now, when we talk about some of the highly recruited guys of the Nick Saban era that that you you have to look at sort of this stretch. Once you got into, Tim, about 2011, 2012, I don't care who you were coming into this program because Nick had had a chance in 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11 to stock this program. And so even a guy like Landon Collins, who did contribute early in his career, it was mostly on special teams. Even for Landon Collins, it was going to take until about 2014, his junior season, his three and out year, that he really became the player so many expected him to become. Again, not so much a knock on him, but you were sort of navigating through an era there where you had Robert Lester at safety. You were going into ha-ha Clinton Dix at safety. You had Vinny uh, coming into the program. So uh, when we talk about some late bloomers on this list, uh, you said it earlier, competition. And once you got four or five years into this run under Nick Saban, you weren't, you weren't going to just waltz right in and, and jump into a starting role or even a role of significance at a lot of positions on this team. No, I, you know, it was a little bit different than now, or even seniority. You had guys who waited their turn and earned their spot. You know, I mean, he's always played. The best player is always going to play. But back then, it seemed a little bit harder. Those classes came back to back to back to back. Uh, still lost guys in each class to underclassmen to the pros. But the, the roster was so thick. You know, it's harder. It's, obviously, it's harder now. Times have changed to keep a roster. That guy, you know, most kids aren't going to wait two years for their turn. They're going to bounce around and try to find their turn. So, yeah, I mean, you know, even now you'll still find those guys. You'll find those guys that show up late. I mean, nobody even knew Quentin Williams' name for a year and a half, you know, at Alabama. So because of the, the guys he played behind. I mean, Alabama fans knew, but, you know, the national audience didn't know. Yeah, so, 2000, those 2012-2013 classes, as loaded as they were, those guys were walking into a loaded roster. For the most part, in 2012, you signed Landon Collins, uh, you know, had to bide his time on special teams and as a reserve there for a couple of years. Um, Reggie Raglan was pretty much the same way before really coming into his own in 2014 and 
2015, uh, a couple of outside linebackers, a couple of guys that got sent home from Miami, Tim, Ryan Anderson and Dylan Lee eventually yeah. became big time contributors and players at the outside linebacker spots. All these guys were 2012 guys. And, you know, for the most part, what they had in common was they were box type players on defense. Landon would play in the box at the money. Uh, Reggie at inside linebacker, Ryan Anderson, Dylan Lee uh, at outside linebacker kind of speaks to what Alabama had accumulated specifically at those positions back then. Yeah, you know, uh, Anderson's always been one of my favorite players. Uh, you're right, started out with the bang. Both of them, they were almost <laughs> red shirts that year. You know, they were so quiet. And yeah. I think that was a late night. We heard a rumor two players, a couple of players got sent home. Um, obviously, it was Dylan and Ryan, and they were, where were they? What was that fame, Fountain Blues? Is that what that called? Yeah, Fontaine Blue. Yeah, yeah. down there. So they're South, out, they're South out Beach there. has gotten a lot of folks, uh, man. Okay? They did, Look, yeah, they, I was about to say. You know, glass just, houses and whatnot. There's right? been a lot worse than just getting <laughs> sent home from that that area at 19 years old, I can assure you. But both, you know, sort of rose back. Dylan always had that little toughness about him, uh, always had that little uh, – that little edge to him that he could possibly be a little bit of trouble. Ryan was a little bit different, was a little bit more quiet, really good player, still an active player in the NFL. You watch him, you know, the Redskins have so many Alabama players. Um, and uh, yeah, did pay, did another couple that dug out of a, <laughs> dug out of a hole. And like you said, the holes used to be a lot deeper. I think they're still deep, but back then it was a lot, you know, I think it was a lot deeper um, for some of those guys who got in trouble. Yeah, Ryan Anderson is a prime example of why I'm not quick to give up on guys that come through this program. Because for the first year or two, Tim, it it looked like Ryan Anderson may not make it to a third year. You know, Uh, a lot of the guys, a lot of the guys we're talking about working, you know, just, you know, message boards and just the, you know, the the rumoring and the, the quick judgments. A lot of these guys were labeled busts. Yeah. I mean, they didn't play early. I mean, you know, Bama fans, every fan, but Bama fans especially, they get a five-star who doesn't play that first year. They label them a bust. Some kids just take a little bit. You know, that that learning curve is not the same for everybody, and the opportunity isn't the same for everybody. So sometimes it takes a minute. And we kind of continue on with this theme of guys who ended up being just outstanding players who, you know, again, walked into very competitive situations, Reuben Foster one of those guys, similar to kind of Landon from that perspective. You knew on special teams he was going to blow something up. I asked Leonard Fournette in 2014 about that down in Baton Rouge. Uh, But as far as an every down or even a two-down linebacker, uh, it took Ruben until about 2015 after coming in in 2013. Jonathan Allen was a part of that 2013 class. Physically, he needed a couple of years to get to where he needed to be to be an every-down guy. O.J. Howard was in that 2013 class. And a guy like Ryan Anderson, Tim Williams, although I think, Tim, it was more about, again, he was one of those 6'3", 220-type outside linebackers, uh, both physically and just overall maturity. It was going to take Tim a little time. The baseball season is in full swing, which means you need to listen to Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network. 
Join Scott White, Chris Towers, and me, Frank Stample, every weekday as we recap every player from every game. We'll talk waiver wire ads, drops, players to trade for, prospects who could make an impact, and everything in between. Make sure to download and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and everywhere else podcasts are found. Yeah, you know, he was sort of, when Tim was signed, it was known he would be little bit of a project you know you find these guys and Alabama used to have a lot of them and and some of you know the guys we're talking about a lot of them are guys we weren't really sure where they projected you know Tim was a guy hand down or playing outside or even moving inside so you know it, it took a minute get their bodies right get them uh um acclimated to a new position just figure them out you know figure out you know like Blake Sims figure out where they're going to play where they can benefit more some of these guys are tremendous athletes can play multiple spots but that doesn't mean all the spots they can play equally. Some they're going to, you know, play better. Also, there's going to be a need for them to play better. So, um, you know, that's another thing. A lot of these guys we talk about their hard work and their work ethic, but also the fact that they're pretty versatile. Um, you know, with Ruben, with Ruben, it was just slowing Ruben down. You know, Ruben was physically. There's never been a question about Ruben Foster. Um, mentally, is another issue. But Ruben on a football field is a high IQ guy. His problem on a football field was that he would just, he just fly to the ball. So, I mean, you know, you, you've seen Christian Barmore dealing with that a little bit where you got to sort of do your job. You can't just run to the ball. You know, there's plays designed to get you out of position. And that, that happens to those guys who are so aggressive. So that's never been the problem, you know, for Ruben. Now he did play well. monsters had to mature a little bit, but his, you know, his work ethic, he worked as hard, um, considering what a big time superstar he was on the recruiting scene, his, uh, you know, his story was covered by everybody. When he got to Alabama, he worked as hard on special teams as anybody they've ever had. So there was never a pouting. I'm not, I'm not starting. Um, in fact, he, I would say he thrived on special teams. He absolutely did. And you're right. Just to see how far he came in regards to what you outlined you know, being able to kind of temper himself to the point where from a responsibilities perspective, he could carry out the things he needed to at linebacker. Big, big difference between the Reuben Foster we saw who was thrust into a starting role for that 2014 season opener against West Virginia, if you might recall. Um, you could see it. I mean, Reuben was his 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 mind was going a thousand miles per second and he, he he was struggling to get that to slow down now 2015 and certainly into 2016 uh he was able to sort of master that and it, it definitely showed up on the defensive side of the ball jonathan allen you know he was just one of those guys that again physically you could see it um upper body as much as anything he had some ground to cover but boy, once he got to the point where he could move inside on passing downs and rush the passer, especially there in 15 and 16. Uh, he was especially dominating. What about Tony Brown? One of the, the higher rated defensive back recruits that Alabama has brought in, in the Nick Saban era. Did, did Tony Brown fully bloom? I guess is the question I have for you, Tim, at any point during his Alabama career, he was certainly impactful there at the end, but do you think we ever saw, the the Tony Brown we fully anticipated getting a glimpse of during his time at Alabama. 
No, <clears throat> I think with Tony, he was such a you know a great athlete. He was a you know if you looked at him, he was ripped. He didn't he didn't have a six pack. He had an eight pack. He was just blessed <laughs> physically. Um, you know, and, and he loved the weight room, and he was a track guy and all that. So we had the highest expectations for him. He was a little bit stiff, you know, when you saw him out at cornerback. Uh, played behind some really good players. Never really found a role, and I don't think mentally really adjusted to Nick Saban's. Now he was better to me in the NFL than he was. Um, he was better to me in the NFL than he was uh, in college in a lot of ways. Because in the NFL, when I'd watch him with the Packers, and I didn't see him a lot this year, but when I did see him in the NFL, he was just covering a guy. There wasn't a whole yeah. lot of trickiness and knowing not to read. It was basically, you know, it's like the preacher's son in Hoosiers. Tell me what kind of bubble gum he's wearing. You know, he was chewing. So I think Tony was better that way. Physically, I just don't know if he could ever live up to the hype. I mean, he was he was every bit the athlete Marlon Humphrey and Minka Fitzpatrick were. And I say that with them think, you know, with them being the highest level athletes at that position I've ever seen, they're as good as anybody. So, no, I don't think we ever saw Tony's best. Um, go ahead. Yeah, he he, you know, he he eventually was able to hold down that star position at Alabama. That in Alabama's defense, that was probably the best place for him, as you said. I, I don't know in terms of pure coverability. Uh, when you look at that 2017 team, and uh, you think about some of the guys that Alabama had, Anthony Averett, I believe that was Levi Wallace year that he really emerged. Uh, at corner as well. Tony was was best suited uh, probably for that slot corner role, but uh, he left a mark. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you talk about memes, if nothing else, and sound bites. Uh, Tony was Tony was one of a kind, Tim. I guess him walking across that field without his shirts, the coolest things ever <laughs> happened in sports. I mean, the fact right nobody, through the LSU pregame. Yeah. I mean, the fact nobody said a word to Tony. And it, I mean, even in a high school, somebody would bark at you. I mean, that just the respect, you know, Tony, you know, and then there was the meme when he was laying in the confetti at the national championship, yeah. uh, his a very original guy, the way he's dressed and some of these things. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of people say he's a really good guy, you know, a little bit emotional, um, but a lot of people really like Tony Brown. And we get into, again, some of these guys on the defensive side of the ball. It seems like we, we, we work over there a lot. Uh, some offensive linemen we could talk about as well. Austin Shepard, a few years earlier, was one of those guys that his last couple of years at Alabama proved very valuable at the right tackle position. But these edge defenders, these sort of hybrid linebackers, Tim, uh, a guy like Christian Miller, uh, sort of bordering on that five-star ranking coming in here, definitely needed time physically uh, to get to a point where he could be a major contributor. Rashad Evans was very interesting because – this was a guy, I think his preference, you tell me if I'm wrong here, his preference was actually on the edge. Uh, really loved Pat rushing the passer, was very good at it. But ultimately, his future was made by that move to the inside linebacker position. And uh, you go back and watch the 2016-2017 seasons especially, um, you know, in that time frame. He, he was as dominant as anybody Alabama had on the football field defensively. You know, I think when it comes to inside linebackers, a lot of those guys are are better as they get on in their career after having played outside. I mean, outside's a little bit different animal. I mean, you can get out in an island. you got to cover guys out of the backfield or a tight end or, 
you can get isolated out there. You know, we as we saw. I mean, I think your experience. We saw this year. You can. I think your experience helps you. So when you move inside, it's a little bit more focused. You know, it's right in front of you. You're able to make those plays. You're able to recognize those plays a little bit quicker. There's a lot less responsibility. I wouldn't say there's a lot less, but there's less responsibility as far as you know getting isolated and getting beat. So you know that that doesn't surprise me. Situational guy those first couple of years. And then 16 and 17 really came on. And you talk about helping his NFL value by going inside and in that ability still on passing downs if needed to kick outside and rush the passer. It's pretty much been commonplace for a lot of Alabama linebackers uh, in the Saban era. Dante Hightower, uh, Rashawn Evans. Uh, we've even seen Dylan Moses do it to some extent here of late. And speaking of which, let's get into some guys that perhaps this next Alabama team will be looking at as some late bloomers. Tim, I get asked about Ben Davis all the time, the former five-star. And we sort of touched on this with Ryan Anderson and some other guys at the position that Ben plays. Is it too late to think that Ben Davis, uh, hopefully at some point in 2020, if we have college football, uh, with with what Alabama has to replace, especially at outside linebacker, could this be the year for Ben Davis, Tim? You know, I don't I don't know. I think that last year I heard a lot better things about him. We didn't really see him on the field that much. Um, I understand he's had some kind of shin issues in the past, and maybe those yeah. are behind him and he's moving ahead. I hope that's true. You know, the thing about Ben to me that that sort of stands out is the fact that kid's still there and and trying you know that's a testament of what kind of person he is it's probably going to pay well it's probably going to pave the way for him to have a pretty good life uh he could have easily walked away i mean he's got to hear you know he's got to run into the questions in english class and at the frat party so he's got to be running into this a lot um but he's still there you know he's still there he's still battling i mean you hope that he that he has a chance um uh to play, I mean, the opportunity is certainly going to be there to come in and impact. Now, those incoming freshmen are going to be monsters, um, definitely athletic. But again, as we've discussed, a lot of these guys, you know, you're going to have to be mentally prepared to to be there as well. And Ben's obviously pretty tough. You know, this this would he's had plenty of excuses to to decide to retire or walk away or transfer. So I wouldn't rule them out. I wouldn't rule them out. All right, Tim, let's get into that roundtable mailbag here on a Thursday edition of T. Watts and TR on the Built by Bama online podcast. If you haven't already, we certainly hope you'll subscribe to the podcast while you're there. If you don't mind, leave us a rating and a review. It'll help us with the old with the old algorithm. And so with that, uh, one of the questions I had for you this week, and it is carried over into the mailbag, what constitutes the perfect baked potato? Because I like to think on Wednesday night at Casa de Ryer, I was able to construct just that. So, Tim Watts, first of all, are you a big baked potato guy? And if you are, what goes on that, baby? You know, I my big, I think I'm more of a sour cream guy, and yeah. I just add some baked potato to the sour cream. Uh, I cover. I love it covered in everything. <laughs> you, you like know. baked potato with your sour cream, is what? Yes, you're absolutely. That's absolutely how it works out. I like a good baked potato. You know, you're right though. I never really thought about it. You, it's one of those things you can screw up. I mean, you can have a bad baked potato. It starts with potato with a with. I'm not a big. I don't like the peel. What is it? A peel or rind? What's around that thing? The skin. The skin. Yeah, just the yes, skin, I, yeah. I knew that. I don't love that, so I usually shave that off. 
my wife does a pretty good job heavy butter and uh, sour cream so um, if I got that I'm pretty good I'll tell you how important sour cream is to the baked potato around our house I had those babies in the oven and by the way I don't do a microwave okay they get the tin foil treatment they go in the oven for an hour at least and the longer the better at 425 I, I'm very particular about the preparation of the baked potato got to clean it really well got to poke the holes in it with the fork then I use a little olive oil Tim I use that uh, sea salt that fine sea salt there then I wrap them in the foil how about that I'm very procedural about the baked potatoes but the sour cream is so important that at our house on Wednesday night we had to call a 20 second timeout to go to the store the essentials you want to talk about essentials during this pandemic sour cream for the baked potato was deemed an essential on Wednesday night because we didn't eat we didn't eat until we got the sour cream Tim there's nothing worse in life than needing a condiment and realizing <laughs> you're out it just you know what I mean there's At the moment of truth there are certain <laughs> things you have to have with certain I mean in certain situations so uh I was real that's probably I was the happiest when my kids my oldest oldest son learned to drive because I could just send him to Publix, you know? I didn't, because for me, it was always, oh my God, do I need to go get the sour cream? It's eight minutes away. I'm so lazy. Now I just send him to get it. But absolutely, that's a must-have. Yeah, that is the beauty of kids with cars, though, because it was the the youngest of ours that jumped into the the Jeep Cherokee and went, it's just an eighth of a mile away from our house. Yeah, it's not far, but I tell you, if you're an older guy... and you don't want to make that day ride. ready to eat. Heck no. Yeah. No. Going on an empty stomach. It's a long, it's a much longer road than you think. Our guy, Bama Hoss on the round table, he says the tater has got to be cooked all the way. And when the butter hits, it melts on contact with a light dusting of sea salt. Bama Hoss says. So there you go. I read that. Yeah. I bet his are pretty good. Yeah. And I, you know, we got, we got some, feed, we got some feedback. You know, on the baked potatoes, uh, it is well on the round table it says the key to a good baked potato is once it's cooked and wrapped in foil. Yes, yes, absolutely. Bounce the potato gently a few times on your countertop. That's new to me. I haven't done that. As you drop the potato, turn it a few times. This loosens up all the meat of the potato, the meat in the potato. It loosens up the meat of the potato away from the skin since you don't like skin, Tim. Yeah, and when you cut it open, all the potato goodness is there for your fixings. How about that, Tim? I like it. I like it. I, I wrote to try that. that. <laughs> yeah, I wrote down. I wrote. I made. I jotted down notes on some of that because it is. You know, the potato. If you're trying to remove the skin, uh-huh. um, sometimes that thing has grown attached to the the meat, and it will not come come freely. So anything that could help that skin just drop off would be great for me. Yeah, uh, it is well got an upvote for that yeah that little life hack there that's that huge. we're gonna have to try now that's big huge. no doubt about it on a potato advice that's a huge upvote bama man for jc ask us here in the roundtable mailbag would dennis francione had been a successful coach had he stayed at bama or would it have turned out similar to his time at texas a&m what do you think tim um i think he was a good coach <clears throat> i think he was coming at the right time I don't think he'd have had nearly success, obviously, that Nick Saban did. I think maybe in between Saban and Shula. I still think Shula would have been a solid SEC coach. I don't think there would have been a lot of greatness, but I think there would have been moments of greatness. Shula's teams 
and Franchoni's to me would have been that team where you lined up all the cards lined up, all the stars lined up, and you had a lot of like a good solid incoming freshman class. But you also had a bunch of fifth year seniors and a good solid senior and junior group. I think that would have been his his better yeah. team. So I think he'd have been I think he was a good coach and it was a good situation, but I don't think he ever could have been a great coach in the SEC. Yeah, I think there was a ceiling to Fran. Now, I think consistently Fran could have done something Shula wasn't doing or perhaps wouldn't have done. We'll never know for sure, I don't think. I, I think most people feel like they know for sure with Mike, but I think Fran was a guy that 9-10 wins a season was certainly going to be possible with Fran. I think um, his system on offense was going to help ensure a lot of that. Uh, uh, I wondered what his ceiling was going to be in recruiting. Uh, obviously not to the to the level that, that we've seen with Nick Saban. I think that Rich Rodriguez would have been very similar to Fran. What we saw in those first couple of years with Fran, those only years with Fran. I think if you're thinking about what might have been with Rich Rodriguez here, I think that's the sort of, you know, big picture you would have been looking at with with uh, with Rich Rod as well. Jared Burns here in the mailbag, Tim, asking about Xavier Sori, the highly rated linebacker recruit. Jared wants to know, will Sori be an inside linebacker or an outside linebacker? He is listed as an OLB, but Rusty Manziel of our 247sports.com Georgia site has called Sori the best inside linebacker in this class. So Jared is confused a little bit here, Tim. Can you sort that out for him on yeah. Xavier yeah, Sori? I, I mean, I think he's an outside guy. A lot of times when you see with these top linebackers, they can play um, – you know, either way, you know, there's a couple, you know, there's an extra inside linebacker in a 3-4 system in theory. But um, <clears throat> I like him outside. I like him on the edge. I like him rushing. I like him playing in space. He's that big-time athlete. Uh, could move inside. Rusty might just think that's where George is recruiting him. Or, you know, he just might think he's going to add some weight. He's a little bit over 210. Um, so could move inside, but we need to put a little bit more weight on. But a tremendous athlete either way. Really good football yeah, and again, Alabama has no problem with those kind of guys. Just look at the most recent uh, linebacker class between the inside and outside linebacker class uh, for 2020. Uh, the the more a guy can do, look, if you can cross-train guys, uh, all the better. Bama Barn 17 gets into some hoops recruiting here. Uh, is Bama basketball looking to add to the roster, such as Jalen Carey, the point guard transfer from Syracuse? Tim, I, I saw a little bit about Kerry uh, mentioning Alabama. It's been a couple weeks now with what we've seen play out in the two weeks since. I, I'm not so sure that Jalen Carey, another transfer, factors into this. Who knows with what we've seen from uh, from Nate Oates to this point. But I don't know if you have anything to add to that or not. No, I think they're probably regrouping and figuring it out from here. Um, I think they probably would like to add a guard, but they, I mean, they got Primo. He's a little bit of a combo guard. He can handle a little bit. So I think they're all right there. I think, you know, that was a flurry. I mean, it was a, <laughs> it was a recruiting flurry. That's one of those things you look up, you know, the dust sells, you got to figure out your roster. So I think it's possible. I've seen some guys mention Alabama. I think Alabama's going to sort of figure out where to go from there. Yeah. And with, Forbes going into the transfer portal here, if you get Herb Jones back, you're sitting right at your 13 for your scholarships. Right. That's not to say there couldn't be more attrition to open up another spot, but that's where you're at right now if Herb Jones comes back. 
Yeah, I agree. And, you know, a lot of times that is when the roster's this tight, you know, we see that, you know, we see that with the football team every year, football recruiting staff, where they're having to choose between take that the best player available or take a certain position. So I think they're waiting to see what becomes available. Obviously, you'd want her back if you can get him back. Tremendous player. And, man, does he fit in with this group of signees? I mean, they're going to look like, you know, physically these guys are going to look like carbon copies almost across the board. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, very welcome to, you know, you know, determine on what Herb does. We'll run a couple in this jam bama gauntlet here in the mailbag on the round table. He's giving it to um, week. He does. Uh, jam bama asks, favorite saying from a coach <laughs> growing up? Do you have a saying from a coach that you had growing up, Tim, that kind of stuck with you throughout the years? I think my biggest was uh, I had a coach used to always, this probably, I don't know how appropriate it is, but he'd say, Check your flap to see if you're a man or a woman whenever you wind. And it, uh, it resonated as a as a young man. If you wind about anything, he'd say, check your flap. Because if your underwear had a flap, you were a man. If it didn't, you're a woman. He'd treat you different. So probably old school, but has always stuck with me. And I do use it on my kids, including my daughter. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so you know, you got to be uh... – Gotta be, gotta be, uh, gotta be equal. But yes, that one stuck out to me for sure. I had a, I had a Pop Warner coach at a time in my childhood where my first two years of Pop Warner, we had lost 22 straight games, something like that. Probably more Ooh. like 18. Yeah, we we were 0 and 18 our first two years. Ran into our third year a Pop Warner coach by the name of Mickey Spillane. Great name, right? Mickey Spillane for a coach. Um, All timer. A great, great person. Really shaped my life in a lot of ways. And his saying was pretty simple. Why not us? And it, it, it got us to thinking, why not us? Even though we had lost like 20 straight games, uh, we got with Coach Blaine. We won 11 straight the next year, won the city championship, the little Gator Bowl, all that stuff. And kind of stuck with me. Why not Why not me? Why not us throughout the years? Why can't we all? Sort That's of do one. the things we, we want to do. Uh, Jam Bama, we'll get to one more of his. He gave us the five-question gauntlet. We always appreciate it. You can only eat one thing, drink one thing, and watch one movie the rest of your life. What are you going with? You know, the first two were easy for me. Mexican pizza, Taco Bell, <clears throat> um, Mountain Dew, the movie, man. Wow. I mean, I'd go with the great comedy. Um the ones that came to mind were Groundhog's Day and Superbad as a couple of movies I could watch over and over. has to be a little bit of a romance uh, angle in there with it, you know, in my opinion. So, I mean, really tough. You know, it's first thought was like Godfather. I'll go with the Godfather. It's three. It'll kill three hours every day. But that thing moves slow in places, especially the second one. So I think I'd want a good, solid comedy and a Mexican. Yeah, movie. that's. That's where I'm at. It would be the wife's chicken parmesan. Um, oh, that, that's 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 at the top. And and look, that's on top of the chocolate that that she she's able to to Don't get give me. me but dryer. I know the Peterbrook the Peterbrook Don't chocolate. Peter. Um, the chicken the, the homemade chicken parm she does. The what you know I would I guess I'm getting old. Uh, probably ten years ago I'd have told you Jack Daniels would be the one thing I would drink the rest of my life. But now oh, I'm like at water. I'm at water now. How, how boring is that? The one movie I'm with you, I, I, I got to go with a comedy. I got to go with the Hollywood Nights from the early 80s. Uh, uh, it's kind of a cult. Yeah, New Bomb Turk, Officer Bimbo. I want to laugh. If I'm going to watch one movie the rest of my life, Tim, I want to laugh. 
I looked at Coming to America as another one that I sort of glanced at to see. Um, uh, Harlem Nights would be Harlem up there, too. Harlem Nights. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Tell your mom I ain't never coming home. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's, that's one of the best parts of movie history. <clears throat> Put your mom on the phone. I ain't never coming home. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, hey, we need to get out of here. It's been a lot of fun, Tim. Yeah, Thursday. look forward. You guys stay safe from the quarantine. We'll see you on the round table. And uh, anything you guys, you know, need, let us know. Yeah, and stay tuned to us for some uh, recruiting news coming down the pike potentially as well. For Tim Watts, Travis Ryer, thanking you for joining us once again on T. Watts and TR, part of the Built by Bama online podcast. Have a great rest of your Thursday, and we'll check in with you again here on T. Watts and TR next week. Hello everyone, it's Michael Richards here. You might have seen me on CBS working on their Champions League coverage over the last couple of years. I wanted to tell you about an exciting new podcast that I've been working on. It's called The Rest is Football. It's me, alongside Gary Lineker and Alan Shearer, two absolute legends of the game. The show combines topical debate from the world of soccer along with outrageous tales from our careers. And I mean, outrageous. Just search... The rest is football wherever you get your podcasts. All the best from Big Meets.